Welcome to Kankakee Podcast, where we talk about the people and places of Kankakee County. I'm Jake Lamore, and just before we get started, I want to throw out there that my neighbor is currently getting new siding on his house. So you might hear some hammers or construction noises. Even though we're in my basement, I feel like you might hear some of those noises as we're recording. So I apologize in advance for that, just because we're so close to one another. Our guest today, and I forgot before we started recording, how do you pronounce your last name, Father? The English pronunciation that we use is Granius. Granius. Okay. I was thinking Granius, but I wasn't sure just because of how the A is placed yeah. in there. So Granius. So we have Father Nick Granius with us on the podcast today. He is from the Annunciation Greek Festival. Oh, actually, the Annunciation Greek Church here in Kankakee, Greek Orthodox Church. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Delighted to be here. It's an honor to have you here. And my whole life living in Kankakee County, my knowledge of Greek Orthodox or just the Greek culture in general is very little. I always hear about this. We've we've got quite a Greek population in the area, so I'm excited to just learn more about that today. Glad to give any uh, information I can. Do you live here in Kankakee County, or I actually live in Lamont. Okay. So I have a uh, an hour to an hour and a quarter a drive uh, coming in and, and going home. And yeah. On Sunday mornings, it's an easy, easy drive. I... <laughs> right. <laughs> Nobody's out, or yeah, or well, yeah. I've... During the week, I'm sure it's different. A little different. Yeah. I fly down. Route 45. There you go. I've stayed off the interstates now. How long have you been at the Greek Orthodox Church in Kankakee? On May 1st, it was, I celebrated my fifth year. So this, I'm in my sixth year now as the pastor of the church. So I was raised Catholic, and I honestly don't know much about the Greek Orthodox religion. What are the differences or what's the, the core of what Greek Orthodox believes as far as religion? Well, to anyone who grew up Catholic, I mean, you'll find tremendous similarities. We like to think that we're the unchanged church of the early Christians. And we were indeed all Christians together for over the first millennia of our history. The the great schism of, of 1054 separated the Eastern Church, now identified as the Orthodox Church, but also Eastern Rite, Catholic Church, and there's hundreds of millions of those as well in uh, Eastern Europe and the Middle East, from the Western Church, the Catholic Church. It was cultural and historical reasons that 
caused the break, more than theological ones, although there are a couple of theological things. Uh, it was kind of inevitable. I mean, the world was, the Roman world was big, and it took a, a long time to get from one place to another, and people would not know each other. And the cultural differences between the East and the West, the governmental differences between the East and the West, stood in the way of the unity of the faith, which was extraordinary. We like to say that we've added nothing to the early Christian church. The All doctrine was created by the first seven, the only seven ecumenical councils, which ended in the eighth century. All the church was represented. Bishops from all over the Christian world came to those ecumenical councils, which were usually held in the vicinity of Constantinople, in, uh, in Constantinople, which is the Roman, the head of the Roman Empire at the time, or, or Nicaea, which is a, a city in Asia Minor across the water, where the first and another ecumenical council were held and other places in that area. All the bishops would gather for those. We've added nothing to the basic doctrine. We say in shorthand that uh, after the schism, the Catholic Church added a few things, like the belief in the Immaculate Conception, or the ability of the Pope to make doctrine, a difference in the creed. Those are really the only three doctrinal things, and they didn't become official in the Catholic Church until 1870, when a very powerful Pope made them doctrine. And then that the, then after the Reformation, the various branches of the Protestant Church subtracted a lot of the things that were that are inherent in the early Christian Church. The, the devotion to the Virgin Mary, for instance, um, iconography. Saints is that, well, say, that, that that's under iconography. So, well, say iconography r reflects saints. Okay. And also events in the life of Christ and the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary, and, and other things, other scriptural things. And the hymnology is different. The iconography and the hymnology that, that are in, inherent in our church and that anyone visiting a Orthodox church, ours or any other church, is struck right away by the fact that all the walls are covered with icons and the whole liturgy and all the services are sung. And they're sung with ancient texts that are very didactic. The hymnology and the iconography were the way the people learned their faith because most people couldn't read. No one could afford to have a Bible until the printing press of Gutenberg, which was at the time of the Reformation. But those were audio and visual aids to the faith. And a hymn on a particular feast, like coming up on Wednesday, tomorrow, is the Feast of the Elevation of the Holy Cross. Um, when the mother of Constantine, the first Christian emperor, went to the Holy Land and found the cross. And we celebrate that tomorrow. And the, in the hymn of that, um, the hymnographer, probably St. Romanos of the 6th century, in just a few lines in a one stanza hymn, told the whole theology of, of the event and of the, and of the importance of the cross. So there are a lot of apparent differences, but in essence, all Christians believe the same thing. Yeah, right. You believe in Jesus and God, yes, and yes, yeah, it yes. essentially is the same thing. I guess I was just always curious, growing up Catholic, and wondering what the difference was. I had... If you had gone to a Catholic church in 1963, before the, the Second Vatican Council of 64, the Catholic Mass was exactly the same Mass or divine liturgy that we sing today in all Orthodox churches around the world, the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Catholic, so you're still there. We're still there. We're still singing this oh, the divine wow. liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And simply what happened in 64 was a lot of things were modernized and changed. That, yes. That's when Latin was set aside and people could worship in the vernacular, and they simplified the Mass. Um, but there are still churches that do a high Mass in Latin using the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. 
We, on the other hand, had had one difference that was one of the cultural differences that I was talking about. As, as orthodoxy grew, as the Christian church grew in the West, um, it was all Latin because Rome had filled a, a political and a vacuum, a power vacuum, and all roads lead to Rome continued to be true for the Western church. If in 1800, if you closed your eyes, you wouldn't know if you were in mass in Dublin or Buenos Aires or, or Rome. But in the East, our monks immediately started preaching to the people in their languages so that our most famous monks were Saints Cyril and Methodius, who set out from Constantinople and uh, in the middle of that first millennium. And they preached to the people of Eastern Europe and the Slavic peoples didn't have a written language and they gave them a written language and that's called Cyrillic. And it's based on Greek. So that if you look at Russian or Bulgarian or Serbian, it doesn't look like a Latin-based language. It looks like a Greek-based language because they use the Greek alphabet to uh, to set down the, the sounds. But of course, Slavic sounds were, were quite different from, from Greek or Western European sounds, so it, it's not identical. But that's a good example of, of, of one of the cultural differences. Our monks immediately started preaching and having the religion in the language of the people, so the services were in Slavic or in the Middle East, they were in Arabic. And that didn't happen in, in the Catholic Church until after 1964. And so in Kankakee, what language? Is it in English? Is it in Greek? Is it? It's is almost it? completely in English now. Okay. Because our congregation is, is English speaking. Even the Greek descendants um, who are members of the, of the, of the parish, um, who are a much fewer number, don't speak much Greek. And the liturgical Greek is not the spoken demotic Greek of the people anyhow. Because so, it's very old. <laughs> yes. So we've, we've gone away from it. When I was a boy growing up in Decatur, Illinois, which is, uh, which is a parish just like this parish, Annunciation, okay. just like this is Annunciation, mm -hmm. built in 1927. Our church in Kenki was built in 1925, just north and a little bit west of downtown on the same corner, the southeast corner, by the railroad tracks. The first Sunday I did the service, it was May 1st, uh, 2017, a number of my cousins who I had grown up with in Decatur attended. Oh, cool. In the middle of the service, the train whistle <laughs> <laughs> over, overwhelmed us. And my cousins all started chuckling uh, because that's exactly what we grew up with in Decatur. Yeah, are we in Decatur <laughs> right now? Where are we? So I had to explain, I had to take time out and explain the congregation. Please don't think we're uh, <laughs> too silly. It was just, I explained why we, were, why we were giggling. And I would imagine, you know, going back to what language mass is set in, I would imagine a lot of the descendants that are left, they don't really have anyone to speak Greek to because the younger generation probably doesn't know Greek or doesn't know it well. So they've got no one to really speak their language. That's right. With. There's not much spoken Greek among the people of uh, Kankakee or Decatur anymore. Almost none. And we do our service almost completely in English. In some of the hymns where there are repeats because we're tied very much to the number three, the Holy Trinity, and lots of other things. We, we do a lot of things in three. In three. So when a particular hymn or part of a hymn is repeated, we'll do it the second time in Greek as well. It doesn't add any length to the service, but it does add a little bit of Greek, especially for the people that uh, long to hear it. It's a tie to their identity, which they had given up by being an immigrant. The church was uh, the biggest way for them to hold on to their, their identity because Greek immigrants didn't come to the United States because they didn't love where they grew up. They came because they were oppressed and they didn't have any 
economic opportunities, and the United States afforded them those. So what happened to bring them there, specifically to Kankakee? How does that start? I don't know exactly what particular industry or who might have been the, the seminal person who, uh, back in the villages, they say, hey, I'm a Pame. if we go to Kankakee, Illinois, there's a man there that will hire us. But, but there would have been something like that. And quite often, especially in a town like Kankakee or in a neighborhood in a place like Chicago, people from the same village or group of villagers would assemble in that place. I don't know the answer to that for Kankakee, but but as an example, I can tell you in Decatur, it was the Wabash Railroad because the headquarters were in Decatur and there was a man named Sam Malios who became a, a foreman early in the 20th century in, in Decatur. And word got out that if you went to Decatur, Illinois, um, Sam Malios would hire you. So they did and he did. And uh, just as in Kankakee, the towns are very similar. They would work in whatever work they could find, but they would very quickly want to have their own businesses. They didn't leave for the kind of opportunities that had them working for someone else. They wanted to work for themselves. Yes, they wanted to create their own things, just like they had back home, right? Yeah. I mean, in Greece, they were running their own businesses. No, they were not. They, they were, were not. not at all. Okay. That was that's the that's the point. Okay. They, they they were most of the eastern. Southern and, and Middle Eastern immigration in the United States happened in the Great Migration, which ended in 1924 when the McCarran Act put a strict limit on those kinds of people that could come. It was really a very difficult law. It put ethnic limits and hundreds of thousands. Until then, you didn't have to have an entry visa to enter the United States. You could present yourself at the border, and if you looked healthy and had some prospects, you would be admitted. And the people that were working at Ellis Island were quite often immigrants or, or children of immigrants themselves. They were, they were sympathetic to, all, to the people in front of them. And so people came in in great numbers. But then after World War I, we were, the United States was reconsidering its place in the world and everything like that. And a lot of people felt overwhelmed by a continuing entrance of, of unlimited number of immigrants, especially Immigrants that they said then couldn't be assimilated, just like we say now, people can't be assimilated because they were different. With the McCarran Act of 1924, 300 visas were given a year to, to Greek immigrants, whereas before, unlimited Greek numbers of Greek immigrants could come in. And they didn't come by the millions, but they came by the hundreds of thousands. And the people like the Greeks and Bulgarians and, and, and from the Middle East, they came from oppressed countries. The Ottoman Empire, until World War I, still held almost all of the Balkans and all of the Middle East. And in the Ottoman Empire, if you were not a Muslim, you could not own property and a number of other things. So the Greek immigrants that came here wanted to do what they couldn't do at home. Now, Greece had already become an independent country, but it was very poor. And uh, things were held by the hands of aristocrats and others, just as we see, you know, in the post-Cold War, you know, we hear the term oligarchs. Yes. And, and that's what happened in Ukraine and in Russia, all the places. A few people quickly gather all the control and all the means of production and all the wealth. And the same thing happened as, as the Ottoman Empire was breaking up. So people needed to have an opportunity. And the United States provided that unique opportunity probably in all of human history. And so they, they flocked here and they would start businesses. The easiest things to start would be a shoeshine shop or uh, something else. And if you had a little bit of capital, a confectionery or a restaurant. Yeah, that's the thing that always comes to mind, yeah. right, is food. And that's not because they were running restaurants at home, because they weren't. But they did have a great sense of, of hospitality. And when they, these places opened up, 
they didn't they weren't making greek food they were making food for the the factory workers in the towns they were making good regular american food my grandfather and his three brothers had a number of restaurants in central illinois and uh they made american food even my even when i was a boy in in the 60s my my father's restaurant he had a family style restaurant in decatur he had a Greek salad and he had his own kind of unique spaghetti sauce, but everything else was good old American food. And he had three or four specials every day and they were giblets and noodles or meatloaf, American chop suey, all kinds of things. It was not yet chic to be ethnic and people weren't flocking to ethnic restaurants in the 50s and 60s or even the decades before that. So confectionaries and, and regular old American food. In Kankakee, a lot of people got into the shoe business. And there's still some remnants of that. Cinderella shoes in Bradley yeah. uh, is owned by the Nanos family. And I think in the third generation now. I think they're the only place in town that repairs shoes. They'll yeah, restore I think baseball. The only ones. Yeah. yeah. They'll restore baseball gloves. They'll uh, restring a baseball glove for you. Lots and lots of other, lots of things like that. Andy Nicholas, the president of our community, his father had a shoe store. The Nicholas boys grew up in and then went on into other walks of life. And uh, the Red Wing shoes is still owned by the Hilopolis family um, that are descendants of... Uh, so in Kankakee, Shoe Stores was one of them. Indicator, confectionaries, and, and restaurants. And of course, there's a lot of restaurants here in the area that right. are, are Greek-owned as well. It's funny you bring that up because as a kid, hearing my parents or grandparents say, yeah, we're going to go to the Greek restaurant. Even though it's Greek people that own it, but there's not Greek food. That's right. <laughs> it was always a funny thing to me. I was like, why are we calling it a Greek restaurant when there's no Greek food? And, and those restaurants are the, the heart of our history. Yes. Because those are, the fa those are children and grandchildren, uh, by and large, of the pioneers that founded the church in 1925. And some of them are pretty well known. I mean, the Brickstone, of course, but that used to be a, that family didn't grow up in Kankakee. They were in, in the south suburbs of, of Chicago, but they came down three or four decades ago. They had a regular old diner, big diner, family style restaurant, a banquet hall, I, probably a variety of things. It was Green Briar, <clears throat> right? Green Briar. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. And uh, that was before my time, but uh, the, Boys went off to college and they came back with ideas and they said, let's uh, enter the 20th century. The 21st century is coming. And so they built the, that fantastic Brickstone Brewery and the restaurants. I've never, I've never had a bad meal in that restaurant. That's, no, that's no, me neither, man. And they came into that whole brewery idea at such the right perfect time because yeah. that's when it hadn't completely like taken over the the world or the country yet it was still kind of a new concept and i feel like they really knocked it out of the yeah. park and and helped put bourbon a and the county on the map they were the host place. for the bears for the years the bears were here the bears yeah. were, and we have the family house across the street here essentially uh, on tim burdaby's um we have two poor boy restaurants on uh on, on Court Street, well, each end. Those are staples. Kolokitha's family. The two Olivers at, at, at the Quality Inn, Nick and Alex Mazarakis, and also they all live in the south suburbs of Chicago, but they, they run those businesses. It's a, it's a big family enterprise. They own a number of similar places in the south suburbs of Chicago. Mayberry Junction and, uh, and Yanis and Mantino. Boy, I don't want to forget anybody. Bill's Diner until recently. Yes. Bill, but Bill Dramonis sold a diner and he's uh, in Panama City, uh, Florida, 
which is what everybody says. If they, every, all the immigrants said they were going to go back to Greece. Very few of them did go back to Greece, but a lot of them have found themselves going to Florida. Yeah. That was the second wave of immigration after the, in the 70s. There was a junta in Greece, so some people, um, there was an authoritarian government for seven years. Uh, it was very much a part of the Cold War. Greece was a big part of the Cold War history because it was right there at the at the border of uh, of, the, of the Iron Curtain and was a, a battleground of ideas and lots of other and, and in lots of other ways. And then the new wave of immigration and with civil right with the um, Foreign Service Act of 1964 and 65, the Immigration Act of 65, our emphasis on immigration changed and it became family reunification. And so then you could petition for family members to come. And uh, th that's the chain of immigration that absolutely dominates United States life. Now, I was an American diplomat for over 20 years, so I worked in immigration matters. I was a counsel overseas. And uh, we admit, people don't realize, we admit over a million immigrants every year as legal immigrants with immigrant visas. And those people are people who immediately get green cards. I'm glad you brought that up. I never hear, <laughs> let's talk about the legal immigrants that are coming in. It's always the focus is on the illegal immigrants, not the legal ones. So a million a year? We give a million immigrant visas a year. Yeah. And there are other people that can come in as temporary workers, H1. You, you, we hear these numbers and names thrown around, and those sure. come in the hundreds of thousands, and those are people that have specific skills. Sometimes they'd be very high level skills, computer skills and other things like that. Silicon Valley, you know, desperately lobbies to have hundreds of thousands of those visas. And then some of them are, are just uh, agricultural, uh, agricultural visas um, for not even a year, for six months, you know, for the growing, for the picking season or something, you go back and forth. And then the regular visitors visas. And then, then you know, a lot of the, until recently when we see what's going on in their southern border, a lot of the illegals that we hear talking about are people that have a, a legal visa to enter, but then they overstay. They, they come in as a student and then they stay. They come in as a visitor and then they stay. And a lot of people know that they will have a difficult time as uh, someone who doesn't have legal status, but to be, to be in the United States under any circumstances is worth it to them. We lose sight of the fact of how attractive we still are to most of the world. Is that what you found when you were a diplomat and you were a diplomat in yeah. Specifically where? Uh, I was in, in uh, Toronto, Canada, okay. um, Bucharest, Romania, um, Ukraine. I was consul general in Athens, Greece during the Olympics, three years, four years there. I was consul general in, in Auckland, New Zealand. That's where I became a priest in, in 2007. I was ordained as a, as a priest while I was also the consul general in New Zealand. There's so many interesting things about Annunciation Greek Orthodox Parish. It's almost 100 years at this point. We're just a couple, what, three years shy? Two three years? Three, three, three years shy. shy of it being here for 100 years. One thing I found fascinating was that there was a group of men in the World War II era that went off to fight the war from the parish, and they all returned. Yeah. We have this extraordinary photograph of 25 of those 20s, 27 and these were Greek boys. In those days, the parish was Greeks, of by and for the Greeks. And the pressure on the children that were born here, and these were all boys that were born here, by and large. Some of them came as infants or children in an immigrant family. But if this 45 is 21 years after 1924, so the parents of most of these guys came before 1924, so they were, the kids were born here if they were of a fighting age in World War II. 
So you have this extraordinary picture of 25 of these 27 that gathered in 46 or 47 for this picture. And most of them were wearing their uniform. All of them were out of the service by then. None of them were career soldiers. They were, you know, we fought the war. And a, now we're home. Yeah. yeah there's a, it was volunteers and draftees. We fought the war and then we came home. And uh, all the services, um, almost all of them, uh, successes in some other field. They're right in the middle, there's a guy named Zaridis who's wearing every ribbon and everything. He became a master sergeant. I mean, he was a hero in the war. Really, we actually have a little framed group of his decorations uh, that, that was given to the church. But they were all heroes, because all, all, as always. Anyway, 27 left and 27 came back. Mathematical odds of that are very small, and not very few cities across the United States could claim that. Decatur, I know that we lost two boys just on the sands of Iwo Jima in one of the last great battles of the war, and, and several others that died in the war. And in Kankakee, they were fortunate all 27 came back. These boys had been together in the 40s and uh, the 30s as they were famous, called the Greeks. They, had a, they were a softball power. We have a, a huge array of these laminated clippings. The Greeks win another tournament. Greeks go undefeated. I mean, in 38, 39. They were just a softball power. It was, it's really very funny. And our president, Andy Nicholas, the la, kind of the last of the cradle orthodox that's still, act, still active in the church, was inducted to the National Softball Hall of Fame a couple of years ago wow. uh, and was just the coach of the year for uh, junior high school basketball this year. He coaches at, at Bishop McNamara. He runs the uh, unemployment office in the Illinois unemployment office in Joliet. As an avocation, he coaches and organizes all these things. And they were also great bowler, bowlers, <laughs> lots of bowling trophies. A lot of these names have faded, from our, certainly from our history. I mean, there's a few people in town where I see some of those. They're very you know, notable names. I mean, you see Athanasopoulos and you say, that's a Greek name, of course. Yes, <laughs> you're right. Yeah, you know right away. Yeah, And, and I, see, I actually see obituary notices with, with names from some of those families that have fallen from the church and were not buried in the church. But I've done... In the five years I've been here, I've done 28 funerals, almost all the old timers. And last year, this wonderful, wonderful man, Gus Anist, died at 96. And he had, he had been, in one, I think the last amphibious landing was on the island of Tinian, where we took, in the Marianas. We took Tinian, and then they started training on Tinian for the invasion of Japan, which didn't have to happen because the war ended with the, with the two atomic bombs. Yes. But uh, they had huge numbers of troops on Tinian and Saipan and other places training for this invasion where they, they thought we'd, we'd lose right. hundreds that, of thousands of troops yeah. in, in that thing. And yeah. so he, he was able to tell me how joyous it was when they found out they, they didn't have to go. He didn't grow up in Kankakee, but he, he had a farm. There's a tradition, there's a place in western Nebraska, a bunch of Greek immigrants went and they, they formed a farming community. Huh. It's a very, you know, history of immigration in the United States is a fascinating subject. And yeah. it, it applies to all ethnic groups. Yes, it does. And it's great to hear more about the the Greek group that came here to Kankakee. So getting back to food and, and another big reason why you're here is the 87th annual Greek festival is coming up. And what's great about this festival is that many different walks of life go. It's not just people that have Greek connections. It's people of all walks of life want to go to the Greek festival. And so that's coming up on October 2nd. And let's talk about Greek food. What is Greek food? I, I always think of shish kebab, right? Is that, That's Greek, right? 
Well, it? It, I mean, it, shish kebab was is is ubiquitous to okay. especially to you know the the Middle East and uh, Eastern Europe. I mean, grilled meats. I mean, the Serbians are famous for it. In Romania, where I served, I mean, they have four or five different kinds of sauces. When you when you go ask for a, a mixed grill, is what I would always order in the restaurants. And this was right after the Iron Curtain, so they, they didn't have a whole lot of variety. But a, you, a mixed grill was a safe thing, and it would be a variety of sausages and other things. Yes. Our shish kebabs have become famous, and uh, and also gyros. Everyone knows gyros. I oh, mean, yes. they go to yeah. the poor boy. And other, yeah. and, but but we think, we think because we identified lambs with that part of the world and the, the shepherds, that lamb is our staple meat. And it might have been it growing up in a village where they didn't eat very much meat, and on Easter they would they would roast a lamb, and we still will roast a whole lamb. Some of the families, if you go to, to Bourbonnais on, on Easter Sunday, you'll see the Brickstone families or the, or the Kolokithas families from Poor Boy gathered together and they will roasting a lamb or two. But the, our famous shish kebabs are made out of pork because pork makes by far the best shish kebab. It's, it's tender and tasty and, and safe. Anyway, it's, it's the, by far the best shish kebab. Some people like to think that it's healthier to have chicken shish kebab, but chicken does not make as good as shish kebab. It's, it dries out faster. It does not, it's, it's just not as tasty. It doesn't take the spices as well as, as pork does. It's not an absor- as absorbent. Right, yeah. right. So our, our, our souvlakia, our shish kebab dinner, which is two eight-ounce souvlakia, which are, which are beautiful. Last year, we actually, um, because of the shortage of workers, the butchers in Chicago just couldn't make them for us. We had to put them on the sticks ourselves, which wasn't hard. And but we—that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. A lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Because we, uh, I mean, we'll sell twelve hundred souvlaki dinners. That's twenty four hundred sticks that you would wow. have to make. And, and that's then, and you make them on the big grills that sit have, outside the have, church, right? We, at some point or other, the founder said, you know. Why are we renting or bringing grills and all? Let's build one. It's 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 actually gas that goes through uh, through through the ground, and there's there's gas there, but the, the gas fires up the coals because okay. the coals give a lot. I was going to say I, I always thought it was coals, but every time I drive by the Greek Orthodox Church there, I, I always see those those grills out there, and I think, oh man, uh, I'm telling you, there there are churches in Chicago and other places that would kill to have grills built in grills like those. Yeah, and we have guys that are very capable of Mark Ends and others that are restoring them and uh, we've kept them up because they do add a, a great extra flavor but also a, an esoteric flavor to think you know you got the grills there and the, the smoke and the aroma uh, and the other thing we put on the grills is the half chicken which is famous as Greek chicken which it's because of the, how we marinate it and and everything it's uh, it's actually fall off the bone delicious um, and so we'll sell we'll typically and we're planning this year to have 1200 shish kebab or souvlaki dinners um, which includes two shish kebabs and 600 Greek chicken dinners, which is a half chicken. And then with each, there's a, it's a full meal. There's a huge pile of rice, delicious rice that's made at the family house. They spend the whole day carting over trays of rice. I mean, it's got a, it, it's a, it's a huge endeavor of love for them to, to work as hard as they do to supply us with all the rice. We make Greek salads and we, and we have fresh, fresh bread. So for $12, you get a huge, and really excellent meal. And last couple of years, we've also added a la carte spanakopita, um, which is spinach pie. A lot of people just love spinach, spinach pie. Spinach pie. Yeah, spanakopita. Spanaki, spinach, pita, pie. So, Pe- what you, I mean, obviously, besides spinach, what else is? It, ha- it has feta cheese. Okay. It's, it's, feta, it's spinach and feta, olive oil and other things, um, wrapped in filo. 
the same kind of filo that uh, is in baklava the people know or galaktuburi the very very thin pastry pastry leaves i mean incredibly thin it takes a while to learn how to use filo because if it's too dry it just breaks apart you have to butter it so there's a lot of butter involved in anything they do those as well and, <laughs> it and sounds people, hard to make well people people love spanakopita a lot of people know spanakopita vegetarians and others it's their go it's one of their go-to foods if they're in a restaurant if they go to greek town or something like that or any greek restaurant it's, it's big and it's, it's you divide it in half and two people are satisfied but we will sell a whole a la carte spanakopita for eight dollars so those are that we have a very simple limited menu but then we have our pastry stand oh, uh, and, boy. and uh, <laughs> that's where i'd be hanging out <laughs> well our last two years we were at the brickstone because the two years ago i do a drive-through and then last year we were still concerned about distances and things like that so at the brickstone we had lots of lots of room but we weren't able then to do the pastries the way we like so we just made up containers and sold them for ten dollars of a variety of pastries and I, people were disappointed because they have their favorites yeah so now we have we'll have the pastry stand and we'll have eight or ten different pastries, baklava and galactoburico, curambiedes. Curambiedes are the butter cookies that have the white powdered oh, sugar yeah. on top of it. Yeah, melt, melt in your mouth, yeah. yeah. And, and, variety, and variety of cookies and, and cakes. So the ladies of the Philoptohos, the ladies' society, the friends of the poor, will be manning the, uh, the pastry stand. Uh, and there's always a line. And then probably the best thing we have is the lucumades. Because I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Jake, we have the best lukumades anywhere. Yeah. All the Greeks from everywhere that have come. I, my friend, I attract certain friends that come down. Uh, sure. And they just what, rave over our lukumades. What are they? They're, they're donut holes. They're essentially donut holes that are fast fried in oil. They're hot, piping hot. Take them out, put them in, in a bed of, of honey, and then sprinkle on cinnamon. And you get a whole array of, a whole tray of those. For just a few dollars, they're, they're piping hot. We can't keep up with the with the demand, and they're just delicious. And uh, Steve Case, your friend, yes, Steve, uh, the, the yeah, astronomer, the, on... the local astronomer and the yes. physics professor, it's been on the podcast. Yeah, uh, he's he he has the thankless job all day Sunday. He'll be in the basement of the church mixing up the batter, and then it takes one of those huge industrial mixers, yeah, to yeah. do the batter. And then sending up a whole tray of the batter for people to put in the balls, put in the oil, and uh, then dress with the, with the honey and the cinnamon and then sell. And he has the thankless job of being, making the batter the whole time. Uh, but he has the recipe from someone of, the, of our past. And Greeks that come from other places say, oh, man, the, the lukumales I just had at St. Constantinople were terrible. These are unbelievable. <laughs> and I've, a lot of people say these are, you can't even get lukumales like these in Greece, which, of course, is the highest praise of all. That is a huge <laughs> praise right there. Well, Steve. Thanks for doing a great job on that, man. And lukumades are hard to get. You don't a, find a store them too or a, much. No, no, a store or a restaurant, restaurant or a, or, or a confectionery or a sweets shop, they're labor intensive and they're not good if they're not right out of the oil. So really about the only time you'll have them is at a festival type okay. of like And in Greece, there are festivals. The festival tradition grew out of the festivals that would be in the villages for the festival they would have on the feast day of the church. Because... The Greek Orthodox faith is absolutely ingrained in all parts of life. 
everyone in Greece is Orthodox and uh, everyone is baptized. And w if they don't, if they go all the time or they, they only sit in the in the platea and listen to the Sunday services over the loudspeakers, because in the villages, the priests have loudspeakers. Do they really? <laughs> yes. So they'll, 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 God, they'll, broad, they'll broadcast the service all over the whole village. They say, okay, if I can't get the people in the church, at least they're going to have to listen to it. Gosh, that's great. <laughs> and that's the, hilarious. And so the, they, they'll have a festival. So like, for instance, after Christmas and Easter, and Easter is our feast of feast, but after those, um, perhaps the next most popular or most important feast is the is the Assumption, the Dormition of the Virgin Mary, which happens on, on August 15th. So on August 15th, all over Greece, there's churches to the Virgin Mary that have festivals. And, and you find ways to have them in the summer months because it's much, much easier in the summer months. And, and a village will have lots and lots of little churches. So there's always going to be a number of festivals in every village. The same things we do here, they do there. We try, and that's the way we, we've tried to have it. We'll have a wonderful band, the Hellenic Five from Chicago. They they really have they've performed all they've performed in Europe and other places. They're they're excellent, and we'll dance. But there are not many Greeks left to dance. Yeah, what is Greek dancing like, and what does Greek music sound like? Well, how can you describe? Well, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound Western. It sounds more Eastern than Western. the The principal stringed instrument is the bouzouki. Which is looks like a mandolin, you know, it's okay. it's round. I don't know what we say. It looks like a mandolin because we think people know mandolins. Well, people, as many people now know what a bouzouki is. We should say a mandolin looks like a bouzouki. But anyway, it's it's got a long neck and it's rounded, especially when it's amplified. It has a twangy sound. The score is from a number of movies that Manos Hajidakis or Mikis Theodorakis wrote, or Zorba the Greek, or Never on Sunday, or or the political thriller Z. They're they're full of music by these these tremendous composers. Um, they, they're melodic, but they have an Eastern, uh, more of an Eastern feel. And that's because it's a more of an Eastern country. Um, our, our church music is descendant from Hebrew music. And we right. don't know what the Hebrew music really sounded like, uh, for sure. No, because it wasn't recorded, right. because that didn't that kind of technology didn't exist back but, then. But oral, oral tradition being what it is, you know, yeah. they... they and then as orthodoxy spread through the Balkans, then that, that would change. If, if you go across the border into Bulgaria, it still sounds very Eastern or Byzantine, but it, ta it takes on this deep bass flavor that you hear, think about Russian choruses. If you hear Rachmaninoff's Vespers or something like that, they have these tremendous choruses. But it doesn't sound like Beethoven or Mendelssohn. But if you go to Romania, which is a Latin country, it does sound like Beethoven or Mendelssohn. The music is lively. It's very historical. It, it always has meaning. The songs have tremendous meaning. A lot of them arise out of the, out of the many hundreds of years of, uh, of slavery of, of, uh, in, in the Ottoman Empire. The Orthodox Church has always been a church in uh, captivity. And so the music and the lyrics and the meaning are, are part of that. And, and we like to dance with our heads high, reflecting the fact that we're not, in, we're not slaves, even though the dances were at times, but most of the time, because... It was only in 1830 that Greece became a became an independent country. Until then, it was part of the Ottoman Empire, and the, let alone Serbia and Bulgaria and all the others, which lasted into the 20th century. And then most of the Orthodox world then was in captivity under communism. Orthodox Church has been a church in captivity for the last for most years. Of, for most of its existence, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, since since the time of, of uh, that Islam took over the Eastern and Southern Mediterranean. It's been a struggle to hold on, and that's and that that they have held on the way they have is a testament to their great belief and to well, many other things. Many <laughs> other things. So the music is very lively, and and the dancing is usually concentric circles. I mean, if you have a lot of people, they were concentric. I mean, we don't have a lot, so it'd be usually one circle. So, yeah, that's what I remember from 
watching movies and such is the, a circle. And we do. In modern times, with those movies never on Sunday and uh, Zorba the Greek, uh, they developed the, the Sirtaki, which is a kind of a, I don't know, a diminution of it all. Because, I mean, it's a little line and, they, and they're looking down at their feet and all that stuff. And that's not the idea. The idea we're looking you're, up. You're looking. We're yeah, up because we're not slaves. We're not slaves. Yeah. But people recognize the music. Uh, Zorba the Greek, everyone's heard the songs. I mean, in all the baseball games. There, you can't go to a major league ballpark without them playing Zorba the Greek, which starts off with a slow, steady thing where we do a, a slow dance and then it gets faster and faster until we're doing a big hasapiko. And the best hasapiko step, a complicated, wonderful step, is Serbian. When I, all us Greek kids in Decatur learned the Serbian hasapiko because it was a little more complicated and it, it set us apart. Whereas the quick hasapiko is just kick it's like the the, the jewish hora which, uh, which hava nagila hava the same beat and the same tempo kick one way kick the other way cross and kick it's very anybody can learn it anybody can learn a hasapiko i will take you out on the i'll take you out on the pavement on october gonna... 2nd and you'll be dancing the hasapiko <laughs> in five minutes i was gonna ask <laughs> if uh, there's like a little lesson before the actual dancing takes place for for those of us who don't know how to how to do that? Yeah, the best way is just to jump right in. But the hasab- yeah. I'm counting along the step. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to kick somebody. No, it's it's very safe. <laughs> or someone's going to kick me. <laughs> the, only, the, the only danger is that an old guy like me will die of a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, there's not many of us that, that, that I'm not there much more than I'd like to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we got the great band, and people want it. We bring it. We'll bring in a, at least one. I hope two troops of dancers in you know in, in great authentic costumes, and people just love watching them. And then the the younger kid, when if I hope we'll get a younger kid from a group of younger kids from Merrillville, they like to stay and they just have fun and then dance. That's really what it's fun because everybody sees the kids. They're not in their little show. You know, they'll have a half dozen things that they've prepared. But then afterwards, the band just plays a variety. There's three or four basic dances based on rhythm and speed. The most common one is the Calvo Matiano or the or the Sito, which are for all the lands, because when we think of Greece now, it's just a peninsula of the modern country of Greece. But until the exchange of populations of the early 20th century, which was the first huge ethnic cleansing, when three million of those Greek people in Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, were forced to leave their homes and go in, into into Greece or somewhere else, all of those lands were Greek lands, and they were very different. They were very different. I mean, on the shores of the Black Sea, the northern coast of what is now Turkey, called Pontus. Their costumes and their and their music is quite different from what they would have had in Athens or Sparta, and we try and celebrate and, and incorporate all of those things. Sometimes when you see these Greek uh, these groups of Greek dancers, they won't it won't look like their costumes are consistent with each other, and that's why that's why okay. that's right. One person will be wearing something from Pontus, another person will be wearing something from 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 Ephesus, which is now Izmir in Asia Minor. Others will be wearing something from the mainland of Greece or from northern part of Macedonia. And though that, so they can be quite different. Typically, the men would wear the short skirt, the fustanella, but a lot of those other costumes from Pontus, they wore pants. And so you'll see guys in black pants with these big hats, and you say, that doesn't even look Greek. <laughs> and it is, but it's just a different it's kind. It's just a different, different region. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's amazing. So how accurate is my big fat Greek wedding? <laughs> how accurate is that? We got to know. In many ways, it's quite accurate. I lived in Toronto. Um, in my first assignment in the Foreign Service uh, in the early 90s. And she's from Toronto, and it was filmed in Toronto. And that's more like the the Greek experience in Toronto at that time than it is anything now. But still, ethnocentrism, 
a father, not particularly educated, but very, very patriotic, um, saying everything is Greek. Every word comes from Greek. Uh, every, every idea comes from Greece. It, that's kind of ubiquitous. The statues everywhere is kind of ubiquitous. My dad went to see it with me, my aged dad. He, uh, he had a restaurant. He, he worked 360 days a year. The last movie, literally, that he had seen was uh, Godfather. Four decades before? Yeah, something. Four decades three, before? three or four decades before. Yeah. My mom was gone, and I was in the Foreign Service, and I was home, and we were having a, actually a, a, re, a reunion festival in Decatur, so I was with Dad. And, and so my dad hadn't seen a movie in 40 years. And he laughed at, at appropriate times, but afterwards he kind of grumbled because he said the central idea that the daughter had to trick her father into getting, letting her have an education was the farthest thing from our experience. Because these immigrants came and sacrificed everything so that their children could have an education. That really bothered my dad. It bothers me because it's not really true. It's not accurate. Yeah. They made the sacrifices so that the, their children would have a better life. And you saw it happening in the very first generation. That's why um, we're not in places like Kankakee or Decatur anymore. I had 25 cousins. Gra name Granius, my generation in Decatur. Not a single one lives in Decatur anymore. We all got educated, and we went. We, we live, you know, we live around the world. I went in the Foreign Service. Uh, one of my cousins is, is also a priest. Several of them became engineers. One went in the Navy. I mean, you know, that my father would have broken my legs if I said I wanted to run a restaurant. Said, <laughs> <laughs> so "Are you crazy? We didn't come here so you could run a restaurant." Yeah. But, but on the other hand, you know, it's a noble, it's a noble business, and yes. and, and it. Uh, Especially in the way that it communicates real hospitality. That's a great thing. People go to the restaurants, not just for the food. I mean, they go to see their friends. It's the they, hospitality. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I feel like that's why my family has always loved going to Greek-owned restaurants. Yeah. It was about hospitality. Obviously, the food was always great, too. But yeah. the, the hospitality of it, it was always so hospitable. And I think that's probably why the Greek festival has become so popular for all walks of life in the area, because it's, it's a hospitable thing. Everyone's welcome. And I should say a couple of words about the church itself and what it reflects. Yes. Because these people came and they had given up their, they gave up, they gave up their identities. And quite often it was a single man that would come and he would send back for some one from those countries to, to marry. There have been movies made about that very subject, some fantastic ones, and, it's, and they're all very true, but a lot of times they would also marry non-Greeks here. But there was always an emphasis, if possible, to, to marry someone Greek and to certainly marry someone in the faith. Very early when they came, having sacrificed so much of their identity, the church was the one thing they could hang on to if they could build one. And so before they had priests, and in the early days, the only priest you could get would be from the old world. Typically from Greece, they would be from Greece or Greek-speaking lands because they wanted someone that could do the services in Greek. Because for the first seventy or eighty years, everything was in Greek in our services. When I grew up, everything was in Greek. Do you know anything about when they built the church? Yeah, nineteen twenty-five. And and it's the same church. It's the same building. It was built, right. and they built it in less than a year. And how did they build it? Well, they have businesses, and they organized themselves, and they went around and they and they said, "Look, we got to have a church. Empty your cash register in this bag." And I mean, that's not just here, it's everywhere. People would, would do that. A group would, rep, would be chosen to represent the whole community. They'd go around and they would gather money. And the, the first time they had any discretionary cash, it went to the church. These enterprising people that had been here a decade 
and we're working for somebody else or had maybe we're found, maybe founding a fledgling business, they put their money together and they built this church and they paid to bring a priest from Chicago to do services. A lot of times it's a town like Kankakee couldn't have a full-time priest at the beginning, but they would, at least for the great feasts or, or often because on Sundays, the priests would be busy in Chicago or somewhere else, but maybe on Saturday they could get them here or for a feast day in the middle of the week. They really sacrificed, really sacrificed uh, financially for this. In their eyes, it wasn't a sacrifice at all because it was ensuring that their children would grow up with the faith of their fathers and the traditions of their fathers. Uh, one of the reasons, for instance, that these Greek boys were this united, fantastic softball team is because the parents didn't want their kids to be running off with all the American, you know, with all the American kids doing who knows what. If, if you could identify something that you would be doing in the church or with the other kids of the church, anything goes. They would let you do anything. So these little churches that from the old country never had choirs, because in Greece, we don't have a tradition of mixed choirs. I mean, all the chanting, is all the singing of the service in Greece is done by the priest and a chanter uh, or a little group of chanters, but usually a chanter with a group of other people just kind of humming along. But they'd come to the United States, the kids would go to school, they learn about Western music. They learned to sing in parts. There were a lot of kids. They said, let's form a choir. In New York and other places, people sat down and wrote Western arrangements of these hymns that were really only had a melody for choirs. And they had choirs to die for, to die for. This church had a choir for decades and decades. And we, we have resurrected one. But it's a, it's a congregational singing choir. It's the little girls of the church. They lead us in congregational singing, and they love it, and it's, it's great for us. But before that, they had tremendous mixed, mixed choirs. And this was some—parents uh, could say, okay, yeah, if you want to go to the church to sing, go. If you want to go to the church to play softball, go. If you want to go bowling with the other Greek boys, go. But stay among yourselves. Don't get involved with the other kids. Was it just because they were so worried about— losing their culture yes, exactly. and, and just because of obviously where they came from, there was so much persecution that it was like, no, we got to make sure we all stick together and do things together Yes, and not. Very, very much. You, you identified it exactly. It was, they, 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 were, they were afraid of, of, of losing their identity. Their, Is it like that today? Well, <laughs> It is among some people because there have been recent there are recent immigrants that feel that way, but you you have to realize that that those days are over. But but I should add that those concerns in the twenties and thirties um, were part of American history because we know about the Ku Klux Klan, which was essentially the, you know the veterans of of the Confederacy in, in the Civil War. But the Ku Klux Klan had mo mostly died out by the end of the nineteenth century. It was resurrected in the twenties. It was anti-immigrant anti-Catholic. It was very much anti-Greek in places where there were a lot of Greeks. And in Atlanta, it was one of those places. So in the early 20s, we, our largest um, fraternal organization, the American Hellenic Educational Progressive Association, the AHEPA, was founded by, by Greeks to protect themselves from the Ku Klux Klan. Jews suffered the same things, and uh, but we were so easily identified and we were so homogenous in our own way and kept to ourselves, um, there were tremendous, terrible riots in Omaha and other, in Tulsa against Greeks, Greek immigrants who were um, looked at as the other. Ku Klux Klan was active in, in central and southern Illinois and 
in the 20th century. Anyway, there was that fear a little bit, but, but mostly it was, wanted to keep the identity. And when I was a kid growing up, I mean, there was a lot of pressure to marry a Greek girl. I bet. I didn't marry a Greek girl. <laughs> I was going to ask, did you? <laughs> no, no, I, I married a, a wonderful Mary Hagan, an Irish girl. As, as I, her family was as Irish as my family was Greek. Her grandfather, an immigrant, was a, was a celebrated Chicago detective. You know, a Chicago Irish cop. Uh, and my son was just re proudly reading his uh, obituaries written in the Tribune when he died because he was a, a, a celebrated detective. Mary saw that my faith is very important to me and she became Orthodox. And uh, I mean, she consented to become a priest's wife. That's not a small thing. <laughs> no, it's not. No, not at all. Yeah. That's, that's, a big, that's a big commitment. A priest, priest's wife, what are you talking about? I mean, Catholics don't, don't completely understand Catholics, that. Right, Catholics don't do that. But in obviously in Orthodox, it's a little different. What else do you want people to know about the Greek Orthodox Church in Kankakee? That it is a, a parish of their friends. Not only we're not just Greeks, we're mostly not Greeks anymore. We're growing because of seekers that have come to our church. Um, there are five Olivet families, people that are on the uh, faculty Olivet, and two from Governor State um, that are, have all, were not cradle Orthodox, but have all in, in their religious seeking, they've come to Orthodoxy, baptized and or chrismated. If you were baptized in, in another Christian faith, then all you need to do is be confirmed. Um, but if you had been baptized, you need to have a baptism. And I've done, to, I've done adult baptisms by immersion. We are mostly fellow Americans, and that's our religious home. But we carry on the traditions of the pioneers that so heroically sacrificed to build this church, some of whom, whose descendants are still there. We try to be very much a parish of our neighborhood. People are always, you know, scared about the inner city neighborhoods and things like that. Well, we're proud of our neighborhood. And uh, when we have leftover souvlaki, we, we advertise it in the neighborhood. We cook up the grill. We, we, we fire up the grill. And we make shish kebabs for the whole neighborhood. And people come and, and partake of them. We... Uh, we're not moving. We think that it's important that we stay there. For, for some of the families, some of whom you know, that's a particularly important thing, that we be part of it. And so we invite them to come. We invite everybody to come to our neighborhood and stay, because you can't enjoy the dancing. I mean, a lot, over the years, a lot of, it's become a carryout kind of uh, event. In the last few years, we've, we've worked hard for it to be more than that especially bringing a Greek, a great Greek band yes. it keeps people there. We have an in-house band too. Um, we have one of our families that, that recently become Orthodox. Have, there's two bands coming out of that family, Vern and Vern, which is an old kind of bluegrass thing. With, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Vern and Vern. I know Vern and Vern. Well, they're, yeah. in, they're in our parish. In fact, okay. Vern, Vern Jr. has become our chanter. Oh, so, awesome. So he and I do services together. We're like, we're like this. Okay. He's an inspiration to me. And then his son has started a, a rock is band. that the Simpsons? Simpsons the right. Simpsons. Okay, the Simpsons. Okay. Yeah. So yep, we'll, I know both of those. So we'll, Vernon, Vernon, and Simpsons will also play and during, cool. during the breaks and other things. I would like people to come and stay, not just to come for the food, but to come for the conviviality. And then, I mean, you got to stay if you want to get the, the hot lukumadis. Yeah. Yeah, because those are no fun. If, even taking them home, they're not going to be as delicious as, as if you have them right there <laughs> with Brickstone beer. We'll be we'll we'll have brickstone beer and 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 Greek wine and and some other folks some other ethnic folks will come down from the city so we'll have some people dancing and it's easy and to stay and dance and I will give church tours um, and the church tours expand yeah you know, I'll say that I'm gonna do them at one two and three 
uh, thinking they'll have a break in between. And I might have a break after the first one, but probably not. It becomes just kind of a... It's constant. Constant. And, uh, and, I, and that's great because people have questions and people are interested. Absolutely. It's a simple but very beautiful church. And people are struck by the beauty of it, or the, the iconography and, and the hymnology. And I start... You, I mean, you heard me now. I go, I'll go on <laughs> yeah. and on about anything. Well, there's so much history, uh, yeah. and it's so cool that we have this slice of culture right here in Kankakee that people can go submerse themselves in and realize, wow, this is. I didn't have to go up, up to Chicago to experience culture. It's right here. So that's what I love about it. And during COVID years, people were afraid that they wouldn't have it. And we'd yes. get questions all the time, are you going to have it? And yeah. we, we weren't, we weren't going to have it in 20, but then we said, we can put together a drive-through. The drive-through was fantastic. The big thing about that was we turned probably 2,000 people away. Wow. But when I, after church, I went out there and the line was already all the way around the block and onto the highway. And at a certain point, Mark Enns and I had to walk up and down the line telling people, I'm sorry, you know, you, 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 you may not get fed if you wait in line. And some people we turned away might have gotten it, but, but other people stayed. And, and we, we managed to feel everybody, feed everybody that stayed, but a lot of people just had to leave. We didn't have it. And then last year we, we had it again, but the, we want it to be of the neighborhood. It, it should be in the place that we're trying to, uh, try to revive. Just as the church has revived. Yes, absolutely. So Greek festival happening October 2nd. Again, if you happen to be listening to this episode before then, proceeds obviously go to the parish and your different ministries within the parish. But as you said, you're always trying to to help the neighborhood surrounding the church there on North Washington and Kankakee as well. We'd like to put a memorial garden across the street. Uh, And the original idea was for those veterans I was talking about. But one of the things we're proudest in our, um, in our national history was that our Archbishop Iacobos, who was our seminal leader of the Orthodox Church in America, Archbishop, he was for th- 37 years the Archbishop of the Church of North and South America, and he was the friend of presidents. And, and in 1963, he, he marched with Martin Luther King across Edmund Pettit Bridge, arm in arm with him and Dave, Ralph David Abernathy, um, as they marched to the, to the courthouse. And as they turned around on the courthouse, Life magazine photographer took a picture of them. Then it's uh, on the cover. It was on the cover of Life magazine. It's one of our one of our proudest moments, and we'd like to memorialize that event and that relationship as well. It's really part of the history of uh, of our country, not just of our community. And you know how you can take a photo. I like to take those two photographs: one of the twenty five soldiers and one of Martin Luther King with uh, and Ralph Abernathy and. And Walter Ruther of the United Auto Workers was standing right behind, really historic photograph, and Archbishop Iacobus, who just looks, he just looks like what God, what you think of God would look like. Yeah. You can emblazon photographs on a piece of metal. And we, we, yes. And so we'd like to do that. We, we're, one of our plans is to put a memorial garden there in the neighborhood, and I think it would be one that would uh, appeal to everyone. You can find out more information. There is a Facebook page for the Annunciation Greek Orthodox Church where you can get updates on that as well. Anything else, Father Nick? No, I think I've said way too much. I don't know if anybody can sort through all my verbiage to get the things they need. I feel like I learned so much today, and I'm really grateful for your time and grateful for everything you do for not only the Greek community here in Kankakee, but the community as a whole. So thank you. It's a privilege. Yeah. It's great. Great to meet you. Thank you, Jake. Same here. Well, that concludes this episode of Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore. Thank you so much for listening. 
Please share this podcast with a family member, friend, or neighbor that you think might enjoy learning new things about the people and places of Kankakee County. Also, a special thank you to our patrons for helping make this episode possible, including Karen Bishop, James Reardon, Jake Lee, Jesse Arsenal, Dave Barron, Daryl Damper, Samantha Rocknowski, Lake Iverson, Travis Garcia, Jane Bostwick, Don Harrison, Simon Topless, Scott Wright, Carrie O'Connell, Jamie Race, Joanne Barry, Anthony Vicelli, Eric Olson, Jeff and Rosa Carroll, Teague Dreenan, Sandy and Steve Twait, and Rose Lucky. To become a podcast patron, go to kankakeepodcast.com and then just click on the patron tab. If you pledge $5 or more per month, you'll also hear your name announced on an episode. There's also other rewards like early access to new episodes, unedited versions of episodes, even video versions of select episodes, podcast merch, discounts on special events, and so much more. Your monthly pledge is truly appreciated. Our monthly goal right now is to reach $400 per month. And right now we're about 37% away from reaching that goal. So please sign up for the patron program today at kankakeepodcast.com. Our theme song is by Lupe Carroll. This river carries on.